Okay, so it's a funny time of year, this. Everything seems just right now. You sometimes forget and write the wrong year on the date, forget what day of the week it is. And I actually had a, friend, a person who had a business and they said, I always have my business holidays, my holidays this time of year because people forget what day it is and they don't turn up to their appointments. So <laughs> it is a confusing time and I'm just going to confuse you some more by putting communion right at the end of the service. And I have a word for some people today, so I'm putting it at the beginning of the service. Just, you know, we just like mixing things up here, don't we? So God's been telling me that there's some people here who, and it fits in with Ali, I think, who um, have been, there's something they've been thinking about doing and they can't see a reason for it. And God reminded me of something that happened to me when I was, I think I was 15 or 16, and it was Christmas holidays, we were stuck at home, nothing to do, and I found my father had a thing called a typewriter. I don't know if you know what they are. Look at old movies with secretaries and you'll see what they are. And also, there was a book on how to learn to type next to it. And I found out my dad had actually been to what they call tech or TAFE, and he'd actually learned to type. I didn't even know that. So I said, can I learn how to type over the Christmas holidays? He said, sure. So I did that. The discipline of every day going A-S-D-F-G, Q-W-E-R-T, you know, all that <coughs> stuff. And by the end of the holidays, I had muscle memory of where all the keys are on the typewriter. And everyone else in the family thought that was a waste of time because there were no computers in those days. The only computers we'd heard of were in big buildings in America or somewhere. But when computers did come in the world, all my siblings only had two finger typing. Guess what I could do? So I'm just saying that you don't know the future and there's some skill that you, a practical skill. It might not be spiritual. It might be how to paint or something. That if you're given the opportunity of it, don't just question it. If you feel drawn to it, go ahead and learn it. Yeah. So, and it's not just for the kids. It's for everybody. All right? So we don't ever stop learning. So I'm going to talk now to the children and ask them, do you know what similes and metaphors are? Adults don't even know. Oh, come on. You know. Miley, what, do you know what a simile and a metaphor is? You're on school holidays. All right, we'll get your English back up to speed. A simile is where you compare something to another thing, a feature of it. Like if you're really sunburnt, you'd be as red as a lobster. That's what we used to say. And if something was really bad, we used to say, oh, it's gone off. It's like a bucket of prawns in the sun. Remember that one? Okay. That, um, so, and a metaphor is very similar, but you say something is something, and you're comparing it. But it's actually have a, a metaphors are much more powerful because they invoke the feelings or other things, a more embracing aspect of that thing you're comparing with. So in the service today, I'm going to bring up a simile that says we are like sheep. We have been led astray. Are we sheep? And Jesus said he was the shepherd, but Jesus wasn't a shepherd. He was a carpenter. So, okay, you get what we're saying? As we behave like silly sheep. 
And I see people behave like sheep when we drive out of Westfield. <laughs> and they get to the barricade and they all the cars all go one behind the other when there's two lanes. They don't think, do they? <laughs> You've seen that? And I'll say to my husband, look, they're sheep again. So we behave like that when we go off in our own direction or we follow the way of the world, don't we? We do what's expected of us, not what God tells us to do. So please, let's get Jesus as our shepherd. Another metaphor we're going to use is uh, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Okay, he's not real bread. Surprise, surprise. But he sustains us and feeds us like bread would. Okay, another one is uh, we are the bride of Christ. Now, in those, and um, God is trying to say to us, He wants the relationship like the closest relationship two people on earth can get, I think, that I see it anyway, is marriage. And He wants such an intimate relationship with us, it's even more intimate than marriage. He wants us to be like a bride to Him. Okay, guys, I know, get over the gender thing. Because, you know, girls, we're the sons of God, all right? But that is the whole body of all the believers is called the Bride of Christ. It's also called, um, what else, the church, those things. So we're using those metaphors and similes today. See, I'm talking at school age level. Okay. We're going, um, I can remember um, many years ago, um, that we, I just wanted to say to people in line, you've got plenty of time to go and find a cracker and a drink, so thank you. Um, I remember going to an Anglican church and the minister there saying that when we take the sacraments and particular um, communion, it's like God giving us a kiss. And I went, what? And I realised there was something in my understanding of communion that was so wrong because when I had communion, I would be so sin conscious. I'd be so aware of how bad I was. And I thought that Jesus was obliged to die for me. Isn't that horrible belief? And I had to go and readdress my thinking about that. So today I want, today I want to talk about how communion can be like God giving us a kiss. Because I've changed my thinking and I think there's a few things that might come up today that challenge you in your perspective of things and where are we going to start is I want you to start using your imagination because when we use our imagination we can we can't see God physically but in our hearts and our, the spirit talks to our hearts and our hearts can interpret that in our minds. So our imaginations are really powerful things. Of course we cast our imaginations under Christ so that the things that we imagine line up with the word. So we're going to start off with working out where this kiss comes from because it's in a wedding. We're going to imagine we are back in the first century when Jesus was around. Jesus had disciples, I think all of them, I'm not sure, came from Galilee. Some of them were married. 
So when he started, when he was doing something on the last, at the Last Supper, they knew he was actually proposing marriage. So we're going to do, do a little play with that. So I've got the people here who are going to come out and we're going to act it out. More props. century AD in Galilee, outside of town. You are there too. We are at the gates of the town. The gates of the town was like the public area where people met. Our elders are sitting down the front, witnessing this thing. And you're all just passing through and you see something exciting going to happen. So you all stop because you know, uh-oh, this is, I think this is going to be a, he's going to ask her. So... Let me introduce you to our actors. Over here we have, oh, it says the bride-to-be. This is Jasmine. Jasmine is, represents the bride, but she also represents the whole of humanity because Jesus proposes marriage to the whole earth. And, but then, if she says yes, she represents the bride of Christ. This is Andrew, everybody. Andrew represents the father of the bride who lovingly cares for her and only wants the best for her. And he also represents our God, our father. You can be funny. Okay. Right. So over here we have the groom. This is Joey. And Joey also represents Jesus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Joey is not a good representation of Jesus. Because it says Jesus was nothing much to look at. Um, and this Adam also is, is that one of our actors. He represents the father of the groom who wants him to get the best bride possible. Yeah. He also... <laughs> <laughs> the best bride possible. <laughs> um, and this is where theology gets a bit mixed up because he also represents God of the Trinity. But we'll just, we're using our imagination. All right, so here we go. We're at the gates of the town. I'm going to stand back. I'm with the serious one, the silly ones. Okay. So the two families approach each other and the bride and the groom meet and they stand under a pole, four poles with a sheet over the top and it's 
our canopy, and it's supposed to represent the cloud that fell down over the mountain at Mount Sinai. So this is sort of saying it's a covenant or a very serious um, proposal that's going to be made. So I better get through my notes. When he first arrived, the groom gives the bride a present. Oh, beautiful present. But the present represents the value. I hope you guys are thinking also, I know it's funny, but you're also thinking about what's happening with on the spiritual level and also at the Last Supper. So think about what Jesus gave the disciples. Um, okay, so the present represents the value that the groom has for the bride. So she, I think she's pretty valuable. At the same time, there's a marriage contract discussed. Here's the contract. All right. And now in the contract, they're going to set out all the terms and conditions. <laughs> For the bride and groom. It would spell out all the groom had to offer, all his resources. So he might bring along some sheep. And the father of the bride goes and counts the sheep. See in the contract it said there's five sheep? He counted five sheep. And if that's right, oh, the whole audience shouts out amen. Everybody? Amen. amen. Good. And then we, that's very good. Thank you. Okay. Now, this is the most important part as far as the bride's concerned. It, she has had no say in this at all. The marriage was arranged between the fathers. So, and all the, the terms and conditions of the contract was arranged prior. She doesn't get a say until now. So the groom pours a cup of wine, his best wine that he's brought with him, and he presents it to the bride. And this is the moment of free will. Will she or won't she? Will she or won't she? And she's looking at him. Do you think his muscles are strong enough? <laughs> we'll just... Oh, Everybody shout, Amen! Yeah, wonderful. And this is sealing the contract, or the covenant. And now the groom, he has a sip. And he says something important. Can you remember what it was? <laughs> I will not drink the wine from this cup until I drink with you in my father's house. Ooh. Heard that before somewhere? <laughs> then he also um, shares the wine with the father and the contract is sealed. Now they are officially betrothed or engaged. So everyone shouts, yeah. Amen! And now they say goodbye. Oh. But there's something. The groom wants her, he's going to go away for about a year or so. <laughs> so he doesn't want her to forget him. So he gives her some gifts. He gives her some, maybe some money because she's got to buy some material, <laughs> make a dress. He 
give her some, something useful to use so that every time she uses it, she thinks about him and how much he loves her. And then finally, he will give her a veil. In those days, the veils went halfway across the face, you know. Yeah, the Middle Eastern veil. We're doing our lovely veil here. And that meant that whenever she went out, she would put on that veil and people would know she's taken. And it also meant it stood for purity. So wave goodbye. Off you go. Now we're going to stay. Uh, Brian, you can stay here. <laughs> Now, the bride has some jobs to do while she's waiting. And the, fir the job, first job she has to do is, is to get ready. So she gathers resources that she's going to present to the groom at the wedding. And, but also she sews her own wedding dress because it has to be spectacular. And if you think about where we are in history, that's where we are. We're the church preparing for the groom to return. Then we have, what's the groom doing? The groom's at his father's house and he's building an addition. Remember, he's going, Jesus said he's going to, he's got many rooms in his mansion. Well, he's got to build them, hasn't he? So, <laughs> is that good enough? <laughs> has to have the house at the standard that the father requires and he doesn't know when he's returning for his bride because the father is the only one. Did Jesus say that? He doesn't know when he's coming back. So then at the right time, at night time at the bride, there's going to be signs starting to happen. So there might be like the whole town will be interested. They'll be wanting to know, because some of them are invited to the wedding and they don't really know when it's going to happen. So they look for signs like, oh, there's all this wine being delivered to the groom's house. Oh, there's um, white robes being delivered. If they're rich, the guests would wear white robes so they knew who was invited and who was the gate crusher. Heard of that before? Somewhere else in a parable somewhere? So at the appropriate time when he gets a tap on the shoulder, the groom is told it's time. But the bride, with all these signs happening, starts to sleep in her wedding dress and she has her bridesmaids stay over and they all stay there waiting for that, a certain sound. And then the sound comes. <laughs> the shofar announces to the whole town, it's tonight. And so the bride is dressed, ready to go. <laughs> and her bridesmaid. And the groom has groomsmen. And the groomsmen start making a noise and they all make this terrible noise for the town. Or, oh, oh, sorry, joyful noise for the town. <laughs> and everyone likes to do some noises. All right. Yay. And they come, the groom with his groom's butcher. If you think about it, it's the angels are the groomsmen come through the town and the bride is, has bridesmaids with lanterns in a procession in front of her and they meet in the middle somewhere and then 
the groomsmen bring like a chair with poles or a litter and she is raised up, as in rapture, onto the, this litter and she and the group go off to the marriage feast which lasts for seven whole days. And all the people who are invited, they have to run there to get there before, yes, yeah, Father Frost. They have to be there because they close the doors and the feast lasts for seven days and then they go off and live in their, um, their home that they've made. Okay, I hope you can see some parallels. Would everyone give our actors some parallels? <laughs> And thank you for the audience, too, that they've done very well to help participate. So let's talk a little bit about what, what Jesus and God were doing in all of this. So I want to talk about what was, I've lost the place, the, pres the present for the bride. Okay. Oh. At the Last Supper, what was the thing that Jesus gave the disciples? Some bread. And Jesus as the bread of life. Also, that was about, and, and that means also about his body. He gave his body for us. That's how much he values us. Now, some of us have a problem with valuing how much we're valued by God. I'm sure all of us have gone, I'm so sin conscious that I don't feel like I deserve that Jesus died for me. But I've got a challenge for you. What did God, what's God's opinion? You are so, so valuable that Jesus willingly, joyfully, because it says in Hebrews 2.2, 2, 12.2 or something, about he looked forward to the cross with joy. And he wanted to die for us. He wanted to reconcile us to God. If you still have a problem with that, I'm going to say, whose opinion is more important? Your opinion or God's opinion? Hmm. If you have inner turmoil about that, that means deep, deep, deep down in your heart, you still don't believe it. So we might do something at the end of the service that might just start to unwind that. So, okay, the next thing, I might come a bit further forward now that our actors have disappeared, was the contract. Thank you, Mark. Okay, also I should go back and read about a verse. In fact, the word reconciliation, which is what Jesus did to us, means to exchange one thing for something else of equal value. So we are valuable as the price that was paid for our salvation. And that's why John says we must look to the cross and the full price that Christ paid to grasp the extreme love he has for us. And it says in John 1, uh, 1 John 4, in this act we see what real love is. It is not our love for God, but his love for us when he sent his son to satisfy God's anger against our sins. Is he angry against us? Anger against our sins. Really, really important. Because people talk about wrath, God's wrath and judgment. 
Dear friends, since God loved us so much, as much as that, we surely ought to love each other. And then we've got this symbol of the cross of God loving us vertically and we loving others horizontally. Now, I want to talk about the contract. In those days, as far as we're concerned here, a contract and a covenant all right, a very similar except covenants in those days required blood. And people used to make covenants with other people and they would actually cut themselves and make scars so that um, when they came across someone who was trying to bully them, they could put their hand up like that and they'd say, oh, you've got some backup there. You've got someone in covenant with you. And it's even a stronger bond than siblings or family. I won't go into that. But let's look at what the contract was and the terms and conditions. You know, we, we get these apps and, and it says terms, I agree with the terms and conditions and what do we do? Don't read anything. Well, well that is so fraught with danger, isn't it? <laughs> so let's look at this. This was written in Isaiah in 700 years before Jesus was. Okay. That's why it's so yellow. Um, and it was actually written, the contract is between God and Jesus. We, um, we don't sign up for that contract. We can be like the bride and come in and agree with it later on. But we didn't make the terms and conditions. Jesus and God did. So, and it has a name. The marriage contract with the Bride of Christ has a name. It's called the Covenant of Peace. And it's in, I'm going to read out a bit of Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. And let's read, skip a chapter Skip chapter 53, go to chapter 54, and what's God's part in this? He says, to me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So we know that when he said he was never going to judge the earth again with water or flood, that was a very, very strong thing, and we know that was forever. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again, though the mountains shall be shaken and the hills removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace, my covenant of peace, be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And a couple of verses later it says, if anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. So all those people who think that God teaches us through bringing bad things in our lives, that doesn't agree with it. Because it says, what teaches us? I'll just divert to another thing. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us. What corrects us? The word. When we are going, we are wrong and teaches us what to uh, to do what is right. God uses it to prepare us and equip his people to do every good work. 
And also, I uh, just want to throw a couple of other ones in. In Ephesians 5, it says, The bride is washed clean by the word. And even in John 15, where it's talking about Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches and, you know, the pruning thing that we all get worried about. It says, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Paul actually gave this a slightly different name. He called it the gospel of peace. And you've heard of that, I'm sure. So Jesus made the covenant with God, not with us. So what are the terms and conditions? All right, I want to look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that the Jews or some people call the forbidden chapter because they have the set uh, readings they have every week. When they get to Isaiah 52, they read that. Skip Isaiah 53 the next week and goes to Isaiah 54. It's a little bit too confronting for them, but not for us because it's so, so important that we're familiar with it. Um, brought, well, brought special bread today. I didn't make it. Alison Noy made it. Can we have the next picture, please? Phoebe, can you see the next picture of some bread? Okay. There it is. This is what the bread would look like when Jesus had the Last Supper. I don't know if you can see it very clearly, but Alison replicated it for us today because if you look, you will see there are... She said that um, she had to make it very, very quickly. It's unleavened bread. means it has no yeast. Yeast represents fermentation, decay and death, and Jesus represents life bread of life so they didn't have any yeast in it it has when you cook it you've got to pound it and pound it and pound it really fast so it's beaten up and it has when it's cooking oh i'm not sure when my husband didn't tell me when you've got to pierce little holes through it if you look you can see little lines and those lines are made by piercing both sides and then they put it on a grill so it has stripes so it's beaten, it's pierced, and it's got stripes on it. I'm just telling all this information, so I hope you're having a few aha moments there. So <laughs> let's read Isaiah 53. I'm reading from the children's Bible because I don't want words like transgressions and things to upset people. So go, what, what are they talking about? So nice and simple. Who would have believed what we heard? And it's, it's actually, it should say, who's heard this great news? It's so good to be true. That's the gospel. Who saw the Lord's power in this? He grew up like a small plant before the Lord. He had no special beauty or form to make us notice him, not like Joey. There was nothing in his appearance to make us desire him. He was hated and rejected by people his fellow Jews. He had much pain and suffering. People would not even look at him. He was hated and we didn't even notice him, but he took our suffering on him. He felt our pain for us. We saw his suffering. We thought God was punishing him, but he was wounded for the wrong things we did. 
the punishment which made us well was given to him. So when it says made him well, or we often used to say by his stripes we're healed, we are healed first of all in our spirit because when we believe on Jesus, it's, remember when Jesus breathed on people, they received the Holy Spirit, but also at Pentecost, they received it in full quantity. Your spirit was separated from God and now your spirit comes alive. Secondly, in your soul, he died for our shame, our, all any mental illness, our sadness, our, you know, everything that we have emotionally, he has made us well and he, that was the price he paid. And physically, Jesus died to make our bodies well as a two. We, now, we've all wandered away like sheep. Each one of us has gone his own way, but the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil we have done. But he didn't say a word. He was like a lamb being led to be killed. He was quiet as a sheep is quiet while its wool is being cut. Now, this is talking about the unjust court case, the trumped-up charges against Jesus. He never opened his mouth, not like Prince Harry. Men, sorry. Men took him away roughly and unfairly. He died without children to continue his family. He was put to death. He was punished for the sins of my people. Now this is God talking. He was buried with wicked men. He died died with the rich, and that was Joseph of Arimathea. He'd done nothing wrong. He had never lied. But it was the Lord who decided to crush him and make him suffer. So the Lord made his life a penalty offering, but he will see his descendants live a long life. Didn't it say he had no children? So what sort of descendants are these? His spiritual descendants, us. He will complete the things the Lord wants him to do. He will suffer many things in his soul. But then he will see life, his resurrection, and be satisfied. My good servant will make many people right with God. We were wrong with God, now we're right with God. That's called righteousness, isn't it? He carried away their sins. For this reason, I will make him a great man among people. He will share all things with those who are strong. He willingly gave his life. He was treated like a criminal, but he carried away this, um, the sins of many people. And he asked forgiveness for those who sinned. So in that little play, we have the sealing of the covenant which was where the bride and the groom and the father of the bride drank the wine. And the wine represents blood that was shed. And if I read Mark, Matthew 26, it says, Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. 
And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, now the departing gifts. What did, if we keep reading on in John, he says he's going to his father's house and then he starts talking about he's got to go away because you're going to get something better called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he talks about the Holy Spirit's going to um, convict the world of their sin, but he convicts us of our righteousness because we've still got that sin thinking. And he says, you're righteous, not I'm overlooking your sin. You are righteous. This is your standing with God. And truth, not my truth, God's truth. He is going to reveal all truth to us through the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just note, remember when um, Elle spoke last week, she read from Romans 12 about our natural giftings. Um, and then there's uh, 1 Corinthians 12, which are the, the gifts of the Spirit. And Ephesians, is it Ephesians 4? They talk about the ministry gifts. All of those passages, if you want to give yourself some homework, go and read about the next bit after it in the um, 1 Corinthians 12 one, what happens? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. So after we talk about, these are how when, you know, they said gifts to be used to remind us of the groom, these are the gifts we are given to, for the benefit of other people, but we are to think of what Jesus did when we use these gifts. And then he says, peace I live with you, shalom. Let's look at the word shalom. I think I've missed that out. Oh, I haven't got my notes on that. What's shalom mean? Okay, shalom, I looked it up. There it is. It's the covenant of shalom, your word, foreign word for today. And that's the other word that is used in the Middle East for hello and goodbye. And I looked up the meaning and just to sum it up, down the bottom it says, the state in, of being in which nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Our relationship with God is nothing is missing in that relationship, nothing is broken. We have this permanent shalom relationship with God. And when we take communion, we are reminded of that. So we get rid of our sin thinking. So after that, Okay, the task of the bride. Basically, as the bride of Christ, our task is to do good works. What is good works? Or what are good works, I should say. So things like influencing the world to show what God is really like, making disciples of Jesus, blessing others, honouring God. But it's personal too. When... My daughter was getting to know her boyfriend, now husband. She kept saying things like, the more I get to know him, the more I like him. And yeah, um, we've got to get to know Jesus. We've got to have that intimate time alone with him. So prayer time and Bible time is really important because we can't go out and bless other people if we're still... Um, still got our own issues that are dogging us and stopping us from 
being the real person we're meant to be. You know where it says, Jesus said, wash your feet, uh, wash the feet. Well, that's talking about the things that happened that day, like things of the world that have come on you. Let's get rid of them, push them away. And as we go to bed at night, it's really good to just, because as you're going to sleep, you get in this alpha state thing. And you just think about Jesus and what he's done. I like to do the good shepherd thing, the 20, Psalm 23 thing. And just imagine myself there with him. And they're the sort of things that get our intimate relationship with him. Or focus on the, one of the names of God. He's my healer. He's my victory in this situation. Now, I'm going to talk about meditation. What is meditation? Meditation is a bit of a no-no word in the Christian world because people have got mixed up with the other meditation. Medita Christian meditation is meditating on something. You're focusing on something. You're pondering. You're imagining. But, you know, we can meditate all day long. It's called worry. Worry is thinking about something and imagining the worst. So let's meditate on and ponder and imagine and think and study. Study is another meaning of it. I think there was a script. There it is. Okay. Utter, talk, talk it out. Some people sing. Some people draw or paint. It's just spending time alone with you and God. And that prayer journal we got last week, you can use that to write your prayers out, but to draw what you are imagining between you and God. So I wanted to do that with, we're getting a bit late, sorry. We, could the service come up now? We're going to have communion right now. And, okay, I want you to get your bread and wine, sorry, juice, and take it back and we'll all do it together. And I think we're going to do it in a sort of meditative way. So could everybody like to come out and get your elements, please? Some people like to have music going and that helps them with their meditation. Some people I know meditate while they're walking through the bush. They look at nature and they are inspired to be quite, they feel closer to God there. We're all different. God's made us differently. Some people have to be active when they're relating to God. Some people sing. Some people make up their own songs. <laughs> I really appreciate getting that prayer journal last week and having that chance to record my interactions with God. So, all the people at home, I hope you've got your crackering juice ready and hopefully we'll all do it at the same time. There's many more people at church than I expected. I thought they'd only have about five rows because I thought everyone was going to be away. 
I used to call this the dead zone. And God's given me a life, get a new perspective. It's now the opportunity zone. I used to think it was dead because there's no social life at church. <laughs> or, you know, like, no home groups and things. And now I'm going, oh, it's um, not like that. It's up to me to create the opportunities to get together with other people. So we all need to, all our lives, we've got to change our perspective on how we see God. I almost brought a Rubik's Cube because I thought, a Rubik's Cube, when, you, when you've when you been having a go at it, it looks like you're, everything's a real mess. And sometimes we look at God and we think it's really complicated, but it's not. I think a, our relationship with God is like the perfect Rubik's Cube. Lovely to see the kids at church taking communion. Just about all there. Now I'm just warning you, unleavened bread is really crunchy and it's going to be noisy. That's okay. Let's make it a happy noise. So we've got our bread. Um, I hope your piece is smaller than that, otherwise you'll be here 10 minutes eating it. of Jesus that he gave so much because we're so valuable. And I'll just read out the verse. While I were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. Think of it as the bride, the gift to the bride. So it's better to say he gave us his life for us. The broken bread's got caused some confusion and um, I was thinking, I've been looking up what people are saying about it. And some people said, well, his skin was broken and things like that. And then I was reading Madeline. <laughs> All right. And that was, it says in, what was it, how many, 12 in two straight lines, they broke their bread, meaning they had their dinner. So it could be like, we break bread at meals. It just meant having a meal together. So, but now I've been looking through different translations and most of them are saying his life was given for us. And if we think of it in the context of the bride, the bride's gift, it is better to say he gave his life for us. So you're ready to do your big crunch, but while you're having your, your eating, I want you to imagine Jesus loving you so much. You are like, I know blokes, it's all right, you can do this. I know you can do it. Can you imagine that Jesus is handing you all his love in this bread? 
all his love. You are so valuable. Right, okay, ready, off we go. <laughs> and it's salty. And it's nice. All right, so let's all just be really quiet and, and have, let our imaginations take over. And then he took, this is after the supper, the cup, they had four cups at the Passover. This one he took is called the cup of redemption. And he took it and he said, he took a cup and when he'd given thanks to God, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. The covenant of what? The covenant of peace, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of, forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on and until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's just sit very slowly and realise that this is the covenant. This is the sealing of the covenant. So when remind ourselves of maybe the day that we accepted Jesus. You just let your imagination go with it. Where is it God? And what's God saying to you right now about that? Maybe you've been holding on to some something you say, God could never forgive me, but it's actually you've dug it up again and you haven't forgiven yourself. So let's spend some time meditating on the blood of Jesus and sealing that promise. Just thank you, Father, that you and Jesus made that marriage agreement agreement way before the beginning of, of the, the creation of the earth. You, you loved us so much that this was the plan from the beginning, that we can uh, reconcile to you. We can go straight into the throne room whenever we're in need, and you'll give us mercy and grace. And we just thank you, Father, that you love us. You're with us. You're with us wherever we go. And we praise you and thank you for the rest of our lives and into eternity when the groom returns. In Jesus' name. And think about that. In Jesus' name, everything you brought with it. Amen. And finally, I'll say shalom.